So we're not going to do too much review at all, except maybe just a couple of minutes to say that there are these certain, you know, there's all these lists in Buddhism. And this particular list is a list of five. It's a list of five uh, different, you can call them energies or states of mind or experiences that we, uh, that we call hindrances. And they're hindrances because they're areas that tend to hook us in. We differentiate them from all these particular group of experiences from all the other ranges of experiences because these tend to get us caught. So we want to name them, label them, so that we can learn to work with them more skillfully. That's the idea. So, so we spent last week just going in as an overview about hindrances in general, and then we actually had a little homework. Some of you may have done it and some didn't. And uh, about working with the first of these hindrances, which is the it's desire, the grasping and clinging on to pleasant experiences. Craving might be a strong version of it. It could be just a mild desire or wanting. It's different than the pleasant quality itself. I want to see if anybody has anything to share about the homework in just a minute, but I'm kind of just saying this for for all of our sakes, but especially for people who maybe weren't here. You know, you can look at all experience has a quality of either being pleasant. There's the experience itself. And then there's the what's in Buddhism we call the feeling. And the feeling is not the way we normally think of the word feeling. We, we usually use it for our emotions, like I feel happy or sad or whatever. In, in this way, we're, the use of the word feeling, we specifically mean the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality of the experience. That's different than the experience itself. So if you're sitting in meditation, you have knee pain, there's the actual experience, and then there's the unpleasant quality of it. So the hindrance is not for the desire one or the wanting. The hindrance is not the pleasantness. It's our relationship to the pleasantness. We want to notice the pleasantness because we tend to grasp onto it. We want more. Right? Just like in the unpleasant experiences, when we get hooked, we want to get rid of it. We don't want to feel it. Right? So it's pretty simple. The problem is we don't see. What happens is the pleasant experience arises and often we're not even aware that we're clinging on to it or that we're, you know, that the wanting, we're just in it. We're at the effect of it. And with the unpleasant, often we don't notice the aversion. We just take it for granted. We're just kind of caught in it. So we're trying to make it a little more conscious and then look at some skillful ways to work with these. Okay. So when we were talking about the... Um, Actually, I can pass out later for some of you who had given a little homework. And the homework was, and hopefully a few people did it, uh, was to notice when this first hindrance that we're calling desire or wanting or craving, 
and that grasping and clinging that comes with it, to notice when it's arising from time to time. Often we won't notice it because we'll just be asleep and unconscious. We won't see it. But when we can remember to notice it, pay attention to what was the object of the craving. I'm just going through the list here again. What, what was it that we wanted? Was it an external object that we wanted? Was it a certain sense experience? We wanted a taste or a touch or a sight or a sound that we found pleasant? A certain feeling that we wanted? Was it a mental feeling? Noticing if any stories come up around it. Noticing what it was that pulled us into the desire. Can we see what is it about this that pulls us in? Sometimes that's not, we want to talk about that a little more tonight. It's not always so easy to figure that one out. Sometimes it's just pulling us in. Can we find a place in the body where, where we can feel the, that wanting, that desire? Actual, can we associate with a physical sensation or a place in the mind? Noticing the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality associated with the desire itself. And then to look, notice, how did we choose to work with it? One way to what we talked about last week that you can work with, with this hindrance is uh, you can just become mindfully aware. Also, we talked about some antidotes. Sometimes what's more skillful is we need to use an antidote to try and actually uh, make it go down a little bit. Or sometimes we just give in to it. We don't, you know, we just uh, screw this and we just go, right? <laughs> So I'm curious, um, that's, uh, did anybody work with this at all during the week? And I'm wondering if anybody wants to say anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's fine if nobody did. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. And usually it's, you know, the reasons are escape, boredom, uh, satisfy, probably just the boredom, escape. Mm-hmm. That's actually very important, what you're talking about there, because one of the, it's going to point to a whole thing that uh, I was wanting to get to, and we might get into it a little more, maybe now, but that it, sometimes it's actually a, a, something else, it's, there's something about the, just the wanting itself, the object that in itself pulls us, but definitely sometimes there's other things associated with it. There's something else we don't want to look at. You know, it's kind of the the cliche of, you know, if we're having a hard time, we go get the ice cream and sit down with the movie, right? Because it's an escape, and it's masking over something else. And there's, there's not anything inherently wrong with that. I do that all the time, the ice cream and the movie, you know. <laughs> The question is, when is it wise and skillful to get the ice cream in the movie? And when is it an escape? I mean, I'm saying it kind of in a light way, but there's actually a lot in there. We're going to get into that more. So thank you for bringing that up. Anybody else want to share anything? Yes. Right. Phenomenon of peace for me. But um, 
So there's that wanting right there. Yeah. Yeah. So just noticing that that's going on, right? Yeah. That you were pushing and wanting. Yeah. You know, um, so let's back up for a minute. Let me ask a question. If magically, right now, we could have the magic wand and using it, you would be completely free of any desire. Right? Let's just pick one. This is a loaded one, so for some of you, but it could be sexual desire, maybe. I want to be careful because we all have different things around that. But, yeah, that's a good one for some of us. It's like, well, would, would we want to not have it? I mean, if you don't have a desire for something. So, for example, I don't like coffee. Never have. Just as an example. I'm not a coffee drinker. I'm not suffering because I'm not desiring coffee. Now, some of you can relate to that because if you really are coffee lovers, it's probably something that adds a lot of enjoyment in your life, I'm, I'm guessing. You get a, you know, really like coffee. Now, I don't have the desire for coffee at all. It never comes up in my mind, never think about it. I'm not suffering around at all. I'm just, it's just no desire, no problem. Right? What if you could just lose all your desire? Would you want to? No. No. Right. Or help others. Right. No, no. That's kind of where I'm... uh, Thank you for for that. Remember, the whole reason for even talking about this, there's only one reason. The Buddha's path was the fundamental teaching is a teaching of liberation, of freeing us from... uh, bringing an end to suffering bringing into everything that limits us in any way is one way to think about it, right? So, if a desire comes up for something and there's no suffering associated with it, you don't want to make a big deal about it, it's fine. There's still desire there. That's just what's arising in the mind. So what? 
We're not all hooked in about it. We're not making a big deal about it. Yeah. You should point out to everybody, Richard, the story about the Buddha meeting Mara after he was enlightened. Maybe you could tell that. Well, in, in Buddhism, Mara is... Um, some scholars describe Mara as the devil. And if you saw um, little Buddha, you saw Mara tempting the Buddha. Uh, Gil description of Mara is Mara has one job description and that's to keep people from getting enlightened. Um, but uh, anyway, um, so before the Buddha's enlightenment he was, he was tempted by Mara and Mara failed and he became liberated. But it goes on in the sutras, um, many times he runs into Mara and Mara comes up and a lot of people are surprised by that, but the Buddha always says, he says, I see you, Mara. So the Buddha was always awake and would not get hooked into Mara's temptation. Right. But it didn't mean it wasn't arising in him. Right, right. Yeah. Right. And of course, there's the other story, which I think I, told, I tell every time I come here practically, but it's, it's so good. One of the sutras on the two darts. So some of you haven't heard it, for those of you who have, just... Bear with me. That the Buddha was describing the difference between an enlightened person and an ordinary person, and he said both the enlightened and the ordinary person experience everything it is to be a human being. The ups, you know, just there, you're in a body, you've got a mind, you have feelings, and even the Buddha himself, you know, he had a bad back. He would say, "Oh, I got to lie down because of my back," and his back would hurt. He, yeah, he probably didn't say, "Oh, my back's killing me," but he kind of said that. <laughs> He'd say, "Ananda, you know, my back's killing me. You go give the Dharma talk." He used to do that. He'd get in fights with his relatives, you know. It was this stuff happened. I don't know what his inner state of mind was, but he would kind of get angry at people sometimes, and it seemed like, you know, so you know, he was a human being. So that's painful when, say, if difficulties arise, or if the pleasant arises and we're hooked into it, right? It, it, there's a, some it, that's painful. There, so it's he likened that to be shot with an arrow, right? The dart, but like an arrow. Both feel the unpleasantness, say. But the enlightened person then is not having a problem with what's arising. They're still free in the midst of that. The ordinary person, in addition to the actual pain of the experience, is then in aversion to it, is unable to be present with it, is unable to be free and awake and clear in the midst of what is happening right now. It's like being shot with a second arrow. Enlightened person is only shot once. Ordinary person gets shot with that second arrow. There's the unpleasantness itself, and then the aversion, the inability, inability, this thing that says, no, not this, and we contract around it. It's that contraction that is another level of suffering. Or... With the pleasant, which is the one we're mostly focusing on tonight, that's seductive. The pleasant experience itself is not a problem. It's when we're grasped onto it and clinging onto it that it's a problem, and that's when it becomes a hindrance. So it's not the experience, it's our relationship with the experience of all of these. So we're not saying that we can't have pleasant or unpleasant and we're just going to become numb. When we're enlightened, there won't be any experience. It'll just be this numbness. No. Matter of fact, in, the, in meditation, see the thing they don't tell you? This is to hook you in. That both the pleasant and the unpleasant actually get stronger. 
So, because think of what we're doing. We sit down, we close our eyes. Some of us may not close our eyes. We're developing some concentration, some mindful awareness, and then turning that inward, directing that power of mind into the mind-body process to go deeply within ourselves. It's a journey of deep self-discovery to see what's real, what's true. Who and what am I, really, in a deep sense? So we shouldn't be surprised that we're going to see things that maybe we hadn't seen before, which means we'll see just incredible beauty that we had no idea was there. You know, we thought we were all terrible and whatever we judge ourselves with, and really it's just we're, this is incredible beauty. And we're going to see the parts in ourselves that we didn't want to know was in there. We don't want to see that part of ourselves. We're going to see the whole thing. And because we're paying attention, we're not masking over. We're actually trying to engage with that mindfulness right with what's real and true in ourselves. We experience it. We're not turning away. That's the practice. To wake up. And that's this practice that we keep saying is this radical self-acceptance. It's to really discover who and what I am and just allow myself to be a free, real expression and get out of the way, not make a problem. We don't even let ourselves be what we are. So when what's arising in the moment is a pleasant experience, whether it's external, we call it external, sense input, sight, sounds, touch, feeling, pleasant, or something that we would call internal in our own process, states of the mind or the heart or thoughts or whatever. We get into trouble when we want to grasp and cling on and hold on to those things. And when we're hooked in, because we're going to suffer when we lose it. A perfect example is Joseph Goldstein. Uh, there's a well-known story. He talks about he had been meditating for however long over in Asia. And he'd gotten to a place where he said his body was just had dissolved just into a body of light. And you can have these kind of experiences. Some of you probably have in meditation. It can be very blissful. It's great. And then he had to leave Asia for a time. I think he came back to America and he had to work for a little while to earn some money to go back. So he worked for a little while, earned some money, went back. When he got back, the way he describes it is there was no light and bliss. His body felt like twisted steel. And he says he spent two years really in suffering and aversion trying to get back to bliss and light. Where he should have been is is what's actually real and true in the present. Twisted steel. <laughs> right? So by clinging on to that, and I can't tell you how many times for myself of how many times I've suffered where, you know, you have this, maybe you're on retreat and you have this meditation and it's just, just this great meditation. That's what we would call a good meditation when we're labeling it, which is a trap, of course. Oh, and I'm expanded and you're seeing all this happening and this experience. Then you get up and you come back and the very next meditation, you're in hell. Body's hurting, hindrance number, you know, three and four are hitting you at once (laughs) or whatever. The multiple hindrance attack is coming. And you're, I'm suffering because I'm trying to get back. Where'd my bliss go? That's that suffering right there. Can I find that way to be free in the midst of this moment now? Right? That's the whole idea. So we're not trying to 
The idea of the teaching isn't to say there shouldn't be any desire arising. All living beings and creatures, we're just, it's so deeply ingrained in us to go towards the pleasant and avoid the unpleasant. You know, they do experiments on little simple single-celled bacteria. You know, if you put the right stimuli there, stimulus, it'll kind of go towards that food or light or whatever. But if it doesn't like light, it'll kind of go away from right? It's just part of being alive as a, as a human being. So, but we want to start to wake up to it so we can have more freedom rather than just being at the effect. Because if we're just at the effect, then life just knocks us around whichever way it happens to go. Our freedom's totally dependent upon external circumstances. That's not a problem as long as we're getting what we want. Big problem when we, <laughs> when we don't. That's the idea. Yeah. Uh, well, I was going to say that in terms of the desire, I mean, I find myself in thinking of this stuff with my kids, um, wanting things to go well for them, thinking about what's happening in the world. Um, and so my clinging, I think, comes in the fact that I cannot really control what happens to my kids. Right. And I don't see anything that can... I mean, even trying to stay separate from that or recognize that feeling, I think that if anything were to happen to my kids or if they have a bad day at school, it's hard to step... Yeah, there's just... It's hard to contemplate the permanence. You know? Right, so right, right. It's hard to kind of say, oh, well, this will pass. I mean, I can say that to them, but I just suffering that I see in them or yeah. so my desire in terms of wanting my kids to have what I think is necessary for them to lead full lives that's where I'm really finding yeah. the hindrance with all of them right. yeah, sloth, sloth and torpor I think smacked out of them I think but. Yeah. <laughs> but you know that's a big one there with children right but I'm just seeing in terms of myself relating to them and, right. and how much of an impact it has on me in my practice mm-hmm. Right. Right. And there's nothing. I've got a daughter. She's in college right now. And I, you know, I can be whatever, you know, you can be in some meditative state or whatever. And all I need is for my daughter to say, Daddy, I'm having a hard time. And it all just comes back together. You know, it's your kid. And we're not going to stop. And I don't know that we would want to stop because we care. Right. So we're making that distinction between. You know, we don't, if we get to a place where we're disconnected from things, where we, we're so much don't care, well, we're out of balance there. But if we're too lost in it, it's that middle way of finding the balance between the wisdom and the compassion for ourselves and for others. Right? And also, there's that wanting for, that's, that's skillful, Maybe towards wanting more happiness or freedom or awakefulness or, you know, that that, I, that would be considered a wholesome wanting because it's it's still a wanting. And if we're attached, we'll still suffer when we don't have it. If we're not, if it's attached a little, it's a little suffering. If we're attached a lot, it will be a lot of suffering. 
However, it moves us in a wholesome direction. Still a want. If we're wanting, you know, whatever it is, and we really don't get... And, and by the way, you can really... Another place to look is any time we're unhappy and suffering, there's either... I'm going to propose, it's never the experience. It's, our, it's either there's something we want we're not getting and we're clinging or we're in aversion if we're suffering. That's that difference we talk about between pain and suffering. Everybody knows that, right? Yes, difference between pain and suffering. Uh. Well, the pain, of course, we know is pain. You know, you know the, the way they say it, which is kind of a cute way of saying it. Suffering is required. Is that the right? Pain. Pain. Oh, yeah. Pain is required. Suffering, suffering is optional. Right. Pain is required. Suffering is optional. So you can, if I'm sitting in meditation, say, for example, and I'm having knee pain, and as long as it hasn't gotten so strong that I can't deal with it. We talked last week about, you know, there's that line. And if the experience gets so strong that it crosses the line, it crosses our ability to work with it, then it's too much. Then we need to find a way to alleviate it. That's what's needed. But if it's on this side of the line and we can work with it, it can still be quite strong. If it's still within our capacity to work with it, we can. Um, we don't have to suffer around it. So it's possible, you know, you can sit in meditation, there's knee pain, there can be quite strong, and you can still be quite at ease, peaceful, free, calm. Still unpleasant. Sometimes people think when you get in that state, then the unpleasant's going to somehow dissolve into bliss and pleasantness. No. I mean, that could happen too, I guess, but not necessarily. Another way that the desire... I've made a few notes here of a few things. So one way that the desire hooks us Emphasis on the hooks us, not the desires of the problem, but where we're caught is, of course, we want, 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 want. Fulfilling desires, satisfying desire by, by fulfilling them. The analogy I thought of, it's kind of like drinking seawater to alleviate thirst. It just creates more thirst. It conditions the mind for more craving. So, for example... Um, I really like dark chocolate. Like, I really like dark chocolate. Never used to be into that that much. And I was kind of playing around and sort of kind of was got into this, oh, I'm really into dark chocolate and I eat it and everything. And not, not really. But now I kind of got myself into it like I crave chocolate. I condition the mind to want, want, want more chocolate. It's not a big hindrance. I'm not suffering that much around it. Just an example. It's the conditioning, the habit of mind. How many desires have we filled? Nothing wrong with it, but you know what? It alleviates the, 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 what it does is it alleviates the craving associated with the desire in the moment. So there's a relief there. There's the pleasantness of, you know, I eat the chocolate. So there's some pleasantness there. It doesn't last very long. A couple of bites, it's just gone. And it alleviates the craving. 
that's the real, if you really look, I found that that's the thing that the real payoff is, is that you don't have that craving there, which is the more deeper suffering. So it takes the craving away. Ah, it's a relief to not have the craving until the next time it rolls around. I've eaten a lot of chocolate, and, you know, it's going to roll around again. It just doesn't, you know, it doesn't end. It doesn't, it's not going to ultimately fix the problem. It just keeps rolling around. So it conditions the mind. It doesn't, you know, it's just a never-ending, it's never going to be enough, whatever the desire is. Once again, no problem. But we just want to start to notice and to see the areas where it's not a problem. We don't have to make a big deal about it. And in the areas where there are the cravings for the pleasant and the desire that are causing us problems in life, we want to start to pay attention. Can we get more free around them? And to distinguish between the two. So, for example, we're not going to start about our children. Well, you know, of course you're going to desire and want and care for your children. Um, Maybe other areas, there may be areas that catch us. That's one. Here's another one. Desire seduces us with its promise of happiness. Fulfill me and you'll be happy. If I can get that, I don't know, whatever. Like I used to be a skier in my younger days. And I would really want the this cool pair of ski boots, right? And if I'd get it on my mind, uh, you know, you'd be wanting it. It would kind of be there, and I would crave after it. And then once I got the ski boots, it didn't put me in some kind of deep state of fulfillment and, and satisfaction. The craving was gone. It was just everything was kind of just normal. The craving was gone for the object. The f- promise of happiness didn't come. They even have done a lot of studies with people who win the lottery. Some of you might know this. I mean, who win like the big, big money. And what they found is invariably, after the initial euphoria wears off, which can last a few months when you win the lottery, everybody reports that they're not any happier or unhappier than they were before. They're just regular. They're not just going every day, I've got, you know, a gazillion dollars in the bank and they're you know, they're just kind of, they have their ups and downs. And I'm sure they're happy to have the money. Life's just the same. The actual day-to-day experience is the same. It didn't produce its, its promise of happiness in and of itself. There may be other things they do with the money that can still then in the future give them happiness. Right? So I've got a few other things here, but any thoughts about this? I'm kind of going on. I could keep going, but... Yeah. Um, so as I've applied the homework to the fact that um, right now I'm in a position where I can either make a significant amount of money or lose a significant amount of money in a, a situation I'm in, and I have very little control over it. It's not gambling or anything like that. Right. It's just, but there's some situation, whatever it is. And it's just a real struggle to you know, be mindful and honest about this. Yeah, situation. yeah, yeah. And I think that's natural, right? If I were in a position where I'm either going to get a lot of money or I'm going to lose a lot, you know, losing a lot of money, that would be bad. Getting a lot would be good, and it's out of my control. I think it's natural that you're going to go through that. So what are you doing? How are you dealing with it? Just 
trying to apply faith and uh, you know conviction that the right thing will happen. But it's, it's challenging. Yeah. Would you have any suggestions? Um, I think it comes right back to what we were talking about about that that line. You know, sometimes uh, there's something that's if, if the mind's really obsessive about it and you're suffering a lot. Um, if it's too much, well, first of all, it's still there's always that line where if it's yes, I do have a suggestion actually. I'll go to my list that I made here. So here's what I came up with. Now, so it's a hindrance because. So wait a minute. Well, actually, let me ask you a question here. What's the actual difficulty? So, is a lot of thoughts going in the mind? Yeah, just, just fear. I don't know what. Worry. Do you mind sharing, or you don't have to if you're. Just too complicated, but yeah, just. I don't need the details of the situation, but your process. You're so fear, yeah. worry, because it's unpleasant. Okay, it's unpleasant, and probably can't stop it. Right? There's probably just a lot of something fueling that a lot. Right? Yeah. So that would be an example of uh, the one that we're going to sort of do the homework on for the next week, so maybe you'll have some good homework, which is the opposite one of the, of the, the grasping, the clinging, the greed, the, the, the desire, which is the aversion to the unpleasant. So there's a couple of things. In the times when you're just lost in it, when it's too much, there's nothing you can do about that. It's too much, right? If you can be awake enough and it's too much, there may be some things you do to kind of alleviate it a little bit. So if you really need to calm it down, if you're really getting a lot, maybe we need to find a way to settle it down a little. And that's the time, and it sounds kind of like a joke, but it may really be the time of the, you know, the ice cream in the movie. If it can kind of, the mind maybe needs a rest a little bit, you know, or whatever. You just do something to kind of bring yourself down. Maybe that's really the best thing in the moment. It's not going to get to the underlying root cause. That's one level. See, there's two levels of dealing with these hindrances when we're caught. One is find we don't make the one is to get the hindrance itself to go away, and and sometimes that's what's needed. The other time is it's not about getting it to go away; it's just to be free in the midst of it. It's still coming up, but it's not jerking us around. So it, that's the art of knowing which is the right time. So if it's one of those times when it's too much and we need to get it to go away, then, you know, the traditional for the aversion, the traditional is, they say, to send some loving kindness or compassion. So maybe what you might do is actually work on a little loving kindness practice for yourself. You need some compassion. You're either going to get a lot of money or lose some amount of money, right? You've got to see the situation you're in and maybe do some of that compassion practice for yourself. Send some compassion around the fear, you know? Sort of a metaphorical arm you put around it, and it's okay, and try to, and maybe see if just that sense might help. Maybe that would help. Is an antidote. Sometimes when you bring the mindfulness to it, that's the first key where we have to, uh, the hope of freedom. Right? It doesn't mean it makes it go away, but it gives us some to start to look at do we have any choices and how to deal with it. You've got to at least have some awareness of what's going on rather than just be completely at the effect and lost, which it sounds like you're able to do some.
So we've talked about that desires, first of all, just suck us in because we, want, we just naturally, as living beings, we want more pleasant. Right? So to know that as that gets stronger, we have the potential to, for, to set up for suffering. That it can also seduce us with its, with its promise of happiness. And that would be something to look into your own life to see, is that true? You know, have I seen that be true or not? For me, that you know, there's places where I've gone for, for fulfilling the desire for the promise of happiness, and um, maybe it hasn't got the payoff. I mean, a uh, sort of a, um, arc, I don't know. I was going to say archetypal example, but that might not be true. But you know, the sort of the, the idea of here in Silicon Valley of the person who goes to the startup company and just puts their whole life into this because of the payoff in the stock, right? Perhaps I've actually been in that situation myself <laughs> and um, did not get the payoff, by the way. <laughs> but, um, you know, so if any of you, that could be true for some of you or not. That's just an example, you know. Well, we put ourselves into it. We could just be really into it. And we're enjoying it and we're just into it, so that's fine. Or we may be going through a lot of suffering, working, what is it they call it, you know, 80-hour weeks and we don't have any other life, but it's going after that payoff that we're going to get out there and its promise of happiness. And then, you know, it's a choice. Well, you know, how much was I suffering? Did I get it or not? When I got it, did I get the promise of happiness? And the fact that fulfilling desire, and this is a big one, conditions... Satisfying craving. Cravings are strong. Sometimes it's just a little wanting, and that's not a big deal. But if we're really in a craving, there's actually a suffering quality to the craving itself. Right? Have you ever maybe found another person interesting? Maybe you'd like to connect up with that person. Very much drawn to that person. But if you're not with them, if it's strong, there can actually be really a craving, a wanting there, a longing. Right? It's a lot of suffering. Yeah. So it's the first and second noble truth. Yeah. I mean, the quote, um, suffering is the first and its cause is craving. Right. Craving is always going to be suffering. Right. And the suffering comes through the clinging. And then the second noble truth is the cause of that is tanha. Did I put the word tanha in there? Which means thirst. Yeah, under hindrance, sense desire, the kamachanda, and then under that craving, tanha. It really means thirst. When you're just craving something, because of that craving, either to have it or to keep it away, it conditions the mind to cling on or to push away. And that's where the suffering comes. Yeah. Isn't that the basis of most close relationships in your marriages, things like that? Yeah, probably. I, I would say so. I mean, I'm not a you know family therapist expert, but that would be my take on it. Sure. And and once again, you know, we're we're not monks and nuns, and nobody's saying that we should not have relationships with people or care, and just be totally aloof and removed. I don't, I'm not saying that you were suggesting that, but but we should just know that ultimately, 
I mean, we all know, you know, that, I don't know if it's good or bad news, but, you know, ultimately, we really truly are going to lose everything, right? Everything we have, we're going to lose. Everybody we know, everything that's near and dear to us. See, the people think the Buddha was a pessimist about this, and he was kind of morose and, uh, you know, he's bumming us out. He just wanted us to take a realistic look at it and just to say, we're going to lose everything. That's even worse than that. We're going to die. The body, you know, we're going to die. So eventually everything is lost. So the key here is it's not just necessarily bad news. It's actually the key to freedom. Because if we can get free from the clinging and the grasping that comes as a hindrance, as we learn to let that go, then we're able to fully be engaged. We don't pull back. We're more engaged because we're not coming out of fear or so much need. We can just be there and be present and just be in the flow, the harmony of life. That's kind of the idea. right? So we can still be in the relationship and I don't know if we get to a place in relationships where there's just, you know, I don't know how it would be for a Buddha, but probably for most of us, I don't know if we're going to get to a place where you're just totally, completely free from any clinging or desire or, or any hindrance. But to the extent, we all know, to the extent that we're in, say, relationship, for example, and if there's a lot of attachment and clinging and a lot of contraction around that, can't lose this or can't have this, or every time you act this way, I can't be with this, or every time... Those are more difficult relationships. And the relationships we can be in with a sense of ease and allowing actually work a lot better. We can still be there fully and actually maybe even have more connection because those artificial defenses and boundaries and everything can start to dissolve and we can just be more open and free. We're not contracted. We're not clinging or in aversion. Right? Seem reasonable? So there's an interesting quote that might that we could talk about. We're not going to have that much time, but um, by the third Chinese patriarch that says, "The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences." That's problematic for a lot of people, because what does that mean to not have any preferences? What's that? Boring. Would it be boring? Mm-hmm. Did someone say boring? Yeah. Boring. To be What's that? To be flexible. Yeah. So that's kind of a positive sense on it. The boring is kind of a negative sense on it. Also, how about this? You know, we've got to be clear what that means. Because I don't, does it mean, well, you know, I don't have any preferences, so... Yeah, you know, there's that homeless person in the street and they're starving and dying, but, you know, it's all right for me because either way is fine. Give them some food, let them starve because I don't have any preferences. You know, yeah, they could fly those planes into the World Trade Center towers. You know, they could have done it or not because I have no preferences. Of course, that's not what we're talking about. So we've got to be careful about the way the language is used. 
Very specifically, what's meant there is it's that grasping and clinging, that attachment. The more we can get free from the ways that we constrict ourselves, we, our, our deeper natural caring and compassion actually comes out. When we come from the deepest place in ourselves, it's not that little contracted sense of self that we've built up due to our clinging and aversion and everything we've built. The more we're actually connected in and in harmony with all that flow of life, then I don't know why it's true, but it sure seems to be true for whatever reason that you couldn't pass by that person lying on the street there without actually being motivated from a deeper place to action, to caring. It's out of the place of no preferences. In other words, where we're more free and not caught in reaction. That we're free to come from the deeper place that is naturally one of that wisdom and compassion. That's what the third Chinese patriarch was talking about. So are you saying that if you have no, don't have preconceived notions that your sense of justice, as an example, would be greater? That the sense of... that the natural flow is toward a sense of compassion, a sense of justice. That's that's my... Anti-war, I mean, you know, killing, anti-whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to be careful about that because when you start to get into the sense of justice, you know, people, there might be other people who would look at the same thing and say, well, you're saying anti-war, but I'm for this war because that's going to be the, for the greater good. You know, we get into a lot of judgments and opinions, well, so I want to be kind of shy away from that one. I Right. that there's suffering going on here. And right. Then, so it would, what I think I'm hearing you say is that from a place of no preference, um, that the heart opens up? That's my experience. Okay. And that's also my understanding. That the, from, the, from the more, the place I'm less at the effect of things, so I'm freer to be present with things. See, if I'm caught in, in aversion, I can't be present for this. No, no, can't have this. Or caught in the clinging to the pleasant, got to have this. I'm not present and awake for what's going on. I'm caught in my reaction. The place where I can step back from my reaction, then I can really find the deeper, more appropriate, natural response, which seems to be one of deep compassion. Hang on one second. I think Steve had something. another translation. I don't know. When you translate... Um, what the third patriarch said is preferences. If you think of it as preferences, uh, you really get lost because you write the whole thing. And preconceived notions is more hitting the mark on it because he goes on to say basically when you set the world up in opposites, mm-hmm. like men, women, good, evil, you know, Iraqis, Americans, whatever, when you set, as soon as you set that up, you've polarized it and you've missed the great way. And the, the whole, that's just the first line. And he says something like, you um, you do this and, and everything's just set apart. And then he goes into detail talking yeah. about what he means by, by yeah. that. Yeah, are you kind of hinting at the concept that there, might, that there are you know, universal truths, basically, that, that we, as we dispense with our aversions, etc., you know, these universal truths appear? Yeah, I mean, 
that would be my take. I mean, there is whatever universal truth is. We want to be careful because I'm not so presumptuous as to say what's universal truth. But certainly my own experience has been that the more I'm... If, uh, I'm just trying to be careful about the way I use the language. Well, I might, I might not say it in the best way, but the more I'm in harmony with life, the, more, the less I'm in an adversarial relationship with life as it is, the more I'm able to fully be appropriate, present, to respond from some deeper place, which seems to be compassion for myself and for others. That just seems to be for whatever, I don't know why, whatever. That just seems to be the deepest I've been able to touch that. And from many of the great meditation masters and teachers seem to talk in the same way. So we use the word hindrance because, the, like I say, the same experience can either just be an experience. You know, just there's chocolate, wanting chocolate, eating chocolate, not a problem. Or it can be, that's, that's just kind of a silly example, so it's not good, but whatever it is that we're craving or whatever it is we're in aversion to, or it's a hindrance. The same thing turns into a hindrance when it hooks us, when we're caught and then, just to know that, that then, then we're at the effect of it and we'll suffer depending on how strong it is, and, right? Depending on the situation. That's the whole thing. So, one is to learn to get free of the hindrances by maybe actually not having them arise as hindrances. And the other is to be able to maybe find the time when it's to be free in the midst of them and just playing with them. Any other comments, thoughts? We've kind of been going all over the place here, as usual. Yeah. You said something about getting them to not arise. Yeah. How do you do that? How do you do that? Yeah. Well, yeah, so actually that got to the very last thing I was going to bring up. So the way we've been talking about the hindrances here has mostly been just in daily life, in our lives, Right? I also wanted to say something specific about um, in uh, the meditation practice. Okay. So just to close, we'll say something about that because that's very important. But I think in general in daily life, so for example, um, there are things in me that, were, that push my buttons, if you want to say it that way, where I get hooked. A certain thing happens or a set of things happened and I'm really angry or I'm caught or I'm gets, gets, gets me going, that other people I know just don't get in reaction about them at all. There's no button to push on that particular issue for that person. Right. But for me, boy, I go through the roof. And there's things that do that for them that's their trigger that for me... It's like, what's the big deal? There's no hindrance there for me. I don't get hooked. Aversion or clean doesn't come up. So part of it is, whatever it is, each of us have those areas where because of our conditioning, that habit of our mind, when the proper certain situation, causes, and conditions come together, it's the conditions are right, the potential is there to get triggered and hooked and caught and then go through difficulties. So one way might be just in the daily life area, it applies to sitting meditation too, is to find, to start to 
get freer from those things a little bit by working on them the way we all do. Right? Just to notice that. What is it? That, where's the trigger point there? Now, in, in the sitting meditation, it's also important, it's actually stressed a lot, that the hindrances are considered, they're hindrances because they're hindrances to dropping into the deeper states of the meditation. And the deeper states of the meditation, can, the deeper concentration can suppress the hindrances. So if you do pure concentration practices, as some of you know, you can get into states where the hindrances aren't even arising. And there's this image that's used of, if I want to see down to the bottom of a a little pond, and I want to see the bottom, and it's filled with weeds, one way to do it is to put my hands in and part the weeds and I can see right to the bottom. When I take my hands away, the weeds come back together and I can't see anymore. Another way to do it is to pull the weeds out. Right? So there's two. With the concentration practice, this is the analogy. It's like we've temporarily, it's like I put my hand in on the weeds are pulled apart. The hindrances can't arise because the mind is so steady. And then it can go look deeper and deeper, maybe in the Vipassana practice, if we're right. But when we take away the concentration, just going into concentrated states, meditative states in and of itself, isn't ultimately going to do it because those states come and go. And when they're gone, hindrances can arise again. In um, the, the, the wisdom or insight practices like Vipassana, uh, are said to be more like pulling up the weeds because they're really looking down, seeing clearly into when things are sort of re- revealed and seen, the deeper levels of where, of where the hooks are there tend to be released and seen. Does that make sense? But it's kind of a, just one second, yes, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing because sometimes we're saying to be able to go deep, we can't, if we have a lot of hindrances coming up, it's hard to settle down and go deep in order to be deep enough to uproot the hindrances. So we just kind of work back and forth with sometimes when the minds, when we don't have a lot of hindrances, we can work on the concentration. And when there are difficulties arising, if we sit in meditation and there's nothing but our anger or fear coming up, then we'll have to work on that level. Yes? I was just going to ask if the concentration leads to mindfulness or is there, is there anything? Yeah. So um, that's a, yeah, so the, it, my take on it is, and this is getting into a big topic with a lot of different schools of thought, but I'll just offer my own. And other people may say something different. And I've only gone so far in it, so I can only talk up to a certain point, and beyond that I don't know. But there certainly is, say, the mindfulness practice. I talked about this a little on Sunday, if any of you... Well, you weren't there on Sunday, right? No. Yeah. Um, where you can do the mindfulness practice without a lot of concentration... And it's great, and it's conditioning the mind, and it's actually quite very powerful. It stays kind of on the surface level. If the mind can't settle and we can't be there, you know, we're pulled away easily, and we can only go so deep. So at some point, we'd like to try and develop a little more concentration, right? 
if we do pure concentration practices, there is a way to do pure concentration where you, say, would never go into mindfulness. And there's a certain type of concentration, samatha practice, they call it. And it's possible to do it in a way that doesn't lead to wisdom and insight. It just develops certain meditative states. And a lot of different meditation schools, not just within Buddhism, other elsewhere, that's the goal. Before I got into Buddhism in the early 70s, I was in more of a Hindu kind of yoga practice. And then they would say things like you want to like have oneness with God, you want to be bliss, you want specific meditative states, right? Yeah. So, and I can tell you, if you, you can get those states, where are they now? They're just gone, right? So it was a nice memory. So it didn't necessarily lead, but it can. Really, the Vipassana practice and the way it's, it, there's a place where the concentration and the mindfulness come together. Whether you start on this pure concentration first and then switch over to mindfulness, that's one way people talk about it. But you can also develop them together where you say working with the breath and the, and the mindfulness keeps growing and the concentration keeps growing. And that's where I found that it tends to get more interesting, where they're both present. And so whether does the concentration lead to mindfulness, I, I don't know yeah. how to say that. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, so some people have a natural proclivity to concentration. And so there are teachers who are schooled in concentration and Vipassana, and they'll work with people like that and bring them to a point of concentration and then switch over to mindfulness and mindfulness of concentration. And then some people, and Gilax thinks like 50 50, and there's some people who don't have. You know, great concentration, so they develop the mindfulness, and then later on they'll, they'll beef up the, the concentration yeah. to meet it. But just natural proclivity people have. Like some people are good right. runners, and some people are good swimmers. Right. Yeah. And thank you. And the thing that's um, we're getting ready to wrap up here. I just want to say the reason I brought this in at the end for a lot of people here in this series we're doing on the hindrances will um, you're not interested. I wanted to put that in at the end. Because for a lot of us, it's just how to work with these to be freer in our lives. And you're maybe not interested or whatever in some of this, the, this meditation stuff. But I want to add that piece in, too, because it's also very important uh, for those of us who might want to work with that. And there's, it's, we all plug into this at whatever level. There's no right or wrong or better than it. Just we're plugging in on whatever level is working for us. Right? So, you know, you could talk. Maybe you have teachers you work with. I'd be happy to talk with you more. I'm sure Gil or... Steve or anybody could talk to you more about some of these. The only other thing to keep in mind that's very important is so I, uh, I know people who've set up a lot of suffering for themselves about trying to get to certain concentrated state. I'm trying to, I got to get to this kind of meditative state. And um, I was mentioning on Sunday, I, a good friend of mine who has been a serious Dharma practitioner for many, many years practiced in Asia for years. Everything has completely quit all meditation. No Buddhism, no Dharma, just because that person was suffering so much because they're, they would just get into the striving. And even though they knew not to do it, it's just the force was too great. 
And so they were suffering because of this. Once again, it's this craving desire. I've got to get there and I'm not. I'm here. So it just be, they would be in a lot of suffering. So the important thing is, even if we're working towards concentration and developing these or mindfulness, we always work with what's actually real and occurring in the moment. So if what's occurring in the moment is a lot of turmoil and maybe inner stuff coming up and we're never getting to concentration because we just have a lot of sadness or fear or anger or whatever, there's no should or judgment. It's just that happens to be along the way. That happens to be what's here now, and so that's where we need to attend. And it's no, there's no better or worse than it's not like, well, I'm all so screwed up because there's, this is coming up and I'm supposed to be getting more quiet. No, 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 that's just what there is there to work with. So we have to be careful so we don't create suffering. All right. Well, last week we gave a homework around desire. That first, you know, sense desire, greed, grasping, clinging, wanting, craving, first hindrance. Second hindrance, we call it ill will, aversion, hate. The homework's the same for any who care to do it. I've got some extra homeworks here, but we're just, I, I didn't reprint them with the word hate, but so I've got the, it says first week homework desire. Just substitute the word ill will, hatred, aversion, and you can work with it this week in the same way. And start to notice either, either in your meditation practice, or if you don't do a meditation practice, whatever, just in your daily life, what is it that I can't be present with? And actually, here's another more generic question to enge- I would invite you to engage in. When you're awake enough to remember, notice the times when you're feeling free, whatever that is for you. I'm not trying to say what that is for you. But the times are just free. You're in the, in the flow of life. You're doing all right. What is it about that time and those experiences? Just to notice. It'll be different for all of us. When are the times when we're not free, when we're really caught, when we're oppressed? I can't be present for this. When we're really caught and suffering, we're not free. Notice I'm not free. Don't get in aversion to the suffering. Let it point to you, oh, this is one of those moments. What is it about the quality of the experience that cannot be a deeper freedom in that moment? And to, and to notice what keeps us free and not. That's a little different than the homework of actually working with the second hindrance of the aversion. Okay. Just some homework to do. So we've gone slightly over. Any last quick question? Have to be a quick one. Okay. So rather than doing a loving kindness to end, because we've already gone over five minutes, uh, I would just invite you to just take a moment, just a few breaths. Connect in with yourself. Notice what's there. in the body, in the mind, in the heart. And then just to notice your relationship with that experience. Can I just be present for this? Or if not, to notice that. And just see how you hold that. So... Good night and...
hope you have a good week.